everybody. This is the Lonely Guy, Steve Center, from the center of the known universe, Indianapolis, Indiana. You're listening to the Theories of Adulting podcast, the show that explores various theories of human motivation to explain the how, the what, and most importantly, the why of people's behavior. This podcast is for learners who love understanding people and why they do the strange things they do. This is our inaugural episode of Theories of Adulting, and we're going to delve into an interesting case and try to understand how people got to the place they got with the things they were doing. And that's that's purposely kind of vague at the moment. I want to dive into this. We're going to be talking about the Sylvia Likens murder. Her case has been discussed other places, but I'm going to still go through it. And I'm going to start with kind of a brief recap of what happened to poor Sylvia. Now, Sylvia was a little girl. She was 15 years old when she first moved in with Gertrude Benikowski. And if I'm saying that wrong, uh, Gertrude's kind of a murderer, so I don't feel too bad about that. Now, Gertrude was a mother. She was a mother of six children who took in Sylvia and her sister as boarders. And the idea was that she, she's a single mom. None of the dads of any of these children really were sticking around. And Sylvia's parents worked for Carnival and basically were willing to pay Gertrude 25 I'm sorry, $20 a week, which in 1965 was pretty good money. $20 a week to let their children stay with her. And this would include, obviously, all their meals. There was a lot wrong with this situation. But what I want to focus on, because most of what I've uh, listened to and read has talked about Gertrude, how she got to where she got in terms of hurting Sylvia. And that is an interesting story and case study. I mean, how does one go from being a mother to murdering uh, I, I mean i know she's a teenager but really a child how do you how do you do that when we talk about sylvia likens being murdered we're i don't know if there's ever a simple murder but we're talking about then this is a quote from wikipedia like likens was increasingly neglected belittled sexually humiliated uh, beaten starved lacerated and dehydrated by her tormentors her autopsy showed 150 wounds across her body including several burns, scald marks, and eroded skin. So this was really more than just one bad action, and it turns out there was more than one bad actor. In this situation, we have, so I want to try to paint this picture for you. We have this young lady. Now, it would not be surprising to me if a 15-year-old girl was a little defiant, especially if she was away from her parents for the first time. It would not be surprising to me if she wasn't very motivated to help out, again, especially being separated from her parents. But, you know, there's just no level of justification to make what Gertrude did okay. But what I want to focus on, an aspect of this case that when I first heard about it, I assumed was fictitious. I watched uh, a movie called American Crime or An American Crime, and this was the Hollywood version of the Sylvia Likens story. Sylvia Likens was played by, uh, at the time, Elaine Page, now Elliot Page, and he did beautifully, really good acting, and man, your heart broke for this little girl and what she was going through. But what was happening is that at, at some point they, they transfer her down to the basement. And again, you know, what started with, uh, you know, some name calling and being upset with with Sylvia and Gertrude kind of taking out her frustration and anger on Sylvia kind of morphed 
over a few months into Sylvia being kept in the basement, Sylvia uh, basically starving and de- to death, and, and dehyd- dehydration is what what killed her. But but while she was in the basement, kids from the neighborhood would come over and they would participate in the abuse. They might burn her with a cigarette or slap her or cut her. Now, when I first saw that, I just assumed that had to be fake. You know, Hollywood gets these stories and they say based on a true story and they produce a movie and they produce a movie and it's really nothing like what actually happened. A huge portion of it is um, altered in order to make the story work. Uh, and, and that's okay, but I really just assumed, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that 10 to 20-year-old kids would come over, see someone tied up in a basement being tortured, and not only not run out of there and tell their parents immediately, but participate in the torture themselves. Well, it turns out that there's a, a state that people get in where they can do really horrible things that they don't normally think of themselves as able to participate in. And so today's theory that we're going to discuss is a term called depersonalization. It's the idea that we all have these self-imposed boundaries on our behavior. You know, you, you might say to yourself, well, I love dancing, but I would never dance in public because I'd be too embarrassed. I certainly, I certainly would not dance in public. (laughs) I remember the lonely gal was and I were courting and we would go to a dance together and, and she was a much better dancer than me and she would dance and I'd just kind of stand there, you know, kind of bouncing my head a little bit. And so, like I said, that's a, that's kind of a social boundary that many of us have, but under the right circumstances, uh, even the biggest wallflower can find themselves out in the middle of the dance floor. Oftentimes we're thinking of this in really negative ways and that's okay because it because it does explain a lot of negative behavior. Um, there are some more positive examples that we'll try to get to, but when, when a person is really consciously aware of what they're doing, so they're thinking a lot about how they look and how they sound and what other people are thinking of them, then they become either timid or, again, whatever behavior they're engaging in is kind of within that boundary that they've set for themselves. So you might have somebody who's a showboat and they'll show off, but it's still within their, their kind of their personal comfort zone. As things happen, to remove a person from thinking about themselves in the first person, then people will start to do things that before, previously, they would have said they would never do. We think about the ways that uh, institutions and organizations work to strip people of their individuality. I spent a few years uh, early in my career working for the Indiana Department of Corrections, the the juvenile uh, division for, for male adolescent males. So, and in Indiana, we call this boys' school. And so this was prison for teenage boys. The boys would come in and we'd get, you know, somewhere like about 20 every week. They'd all come in on the same day. You know, they wore whatever clothes they were wearing and they had their various hairstyles. And the first thing they would do is make the boys, you know, take off their clothes and put on a, a jumpsuit and a shower. And, and then at some point within the first couple hours, they would get a haircut. And the haircut was just 
their head shaved. So, you know, it was that immediate beginning to strip away the boys from, you know, that that sense of individuality. In a prison environment, I think the argument would be that they need to do that because it helps keep the inmates uh, behaving. In other words, they they were Bill and Gary and, and James, these rough thugs, and now they're inmates 132, 133, and 134, and their head shaved, and they're wearing the same clothes, and they got to stand in the same line, and they got to ask to use the bathroom. And so very quickly, they've begun to strip away some of those parts of their identity, their individuality. We want that uniform because it, it takes away the individual differences and makes everybody more the same. We think about our interactions on the internet and the idea of being anonymous. And I personally enjoy bantering back and forth with people and disagreeing with people. Now, over time, I've worked hard to do a better job of being kind and respectful, of being willing to admit if I got something wrong. These are things that do not necessarily come naturally to me when I'm disagreeing with somebody and they definitely don't come naturally in a situation where uh, my anonymity is guaranteed and so again that's another way to strip away the the individual no longer is thinking about themselves they're thinking about this internet persona that they're created that they've created and it may even be that there's a lot of overlap between their true self and this uh, internet creation that they have. Regardless, though, as those separations are happening, then all people become more susceptible to behaviors that they would not normally participate in. So we go back to the Sylvia Likens case, and I think about a, a young lady who was with their, her friends down in the basement seeing Sylvia, and they talked her into burning this young lady with a cigarette. And, and the girl said, no, I don't want to do that. And again, it was so disturbing that I assumed it was fictitious and it was not. And that was very troubling. So here we have these kids who come from, and let's just say they all come from good homes, although, although some don't, correct? But they are torturing this girl. And if you were to ask them, hey, are you the kind of person who would torture someone? They would 100% say no. Nobody in that group is saying, oh yeah, give me the chance and I'll burn them, I'll Cut him. A next door neighbor uh, carved uh, a message about her being a prostitute in her stomach. I mean, the situation is really horrific. But what happens is, is that while we can do things to create this anonymity, so for instance, going online, I create this anonymous persona. And even here, you know, I give myself this nickname, the lonely guy. And the nickname comes from the fact that my kids are all getting older and they don't want to hang out with me anymore. Like when they were little, Dad was pretty cool, but now dad's nice, but they don't want to spend time with me. And my wife works all the time, so it's kind of me and my dog. And so I came up with this uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek nickname, but nobody knows me. I mean, I, mean, I know there are, hand there are some people who do, but, but, but really, I mean, overwhelmingly, nobody, nobody knows me as I'm doing this. And so I really feel very free to say what I want to say, to sing or to dance or to shout or to try to make good points. So sometimes we can do it on purpose, but other times we just get caught up in a situation. And this is something that when I've talked to my children, I've tried to emphasize to them. Them, that anybody can, and this is really true, anybody can get caught up in a situation. If there's a person who thinks that they are too strong 
or independent or individualistic to do what the crowd is doing. There very well may be times where that's true, but every person has areas where they are susceptible. There was an interesting study that came out. Now, I was in graduate school more than 20 years ago when I heard this. So this is a pretty old study. Now. They had a bucket. It was Halloween night. They had a bucket and it's, you know, the little sign that said, please take one. And if, if a person came up and they had a little camera that watched and recorded what people did and correctly, people came up in groups of one or two, they would take one or two pieces. But as soon as the group hit three, they would dump the bucket. And so there was something about the anonymous nature of being part of a group that led to this, this, this feeling of lack of self, therefore decreased accountability and increased susceptibility to very concerning, and, and in the case of Sylvia Likens, really almost murderous behavior. Stanley Milgram was a pioneer in early psychology, and he was Jewish, and he had survived World War II, and he wondered, like a lot of people did, you know, hey, what was going on over there that German people seemed willing to torture Jews, put them in concentration camps, essentially try to wipe out an entire population? You know, was there something exceptionally bad about the German people, or was this kind of a possibility within all of us? And what Milgram found was that everybody had some susceptibility to being told what to do. Uh, there wasn't anyone who went in and from the first moment said no. And what he set them up to do was they watched people trying to learn word pairs. And if they got one wrong, they would, they would give them electric shocks, which was just a pretty severe punishment for getting a word pair wrong. It's something that most of us would say, I, I, will, I would not do that. I would not shock someone. And at the time, people assumed that only like a true psychopath would actually go through all the way and, and keep administering the shock. But it turned out that two-thirds of the people they studied were willing to go all the way and effectively murder someone because they got word pairs wrong. And in that situation, they were in a you know kind of a learner role, a student role. They had a professional telling them what to do. The professional would wear like a lab coat and have glasses. It just really looked really official. Then he started, you know, so he kind of came up with that basic design, but then he started doing changes to the experiment to see like, well, how do, what happens when this factor happens or this factor happens and how do people respond to this? It's very interesting. And it's one of the fun things you can do with research is, you know, once you've got your baseline, then you can, you can start looking for how changes um, create differences. And there were all sorts of, uh, things that led people to be more likely to obey or less likely to obey. But there was never a scenario where, where people just refused to even participate. And I think that for us, for our purposes, that's very telling because I remember one scene from the movie. And again, again I just I don't mean to keep beating the same dead horse, but it was just so shocking. And so then to find out that this this particular moment really happened was was pretty unsettling, um, where this young lady, you know, and we're talking about, you know, a 15-year-old girl, very pretty, appeared to come from a good home, and, you know, the, the other kids are like, come on, just burn her, <laughs> just do it, and she's like, I don't want to do that, and after just, I mean, it didn't take very long of coaxing, and she goes over, and she burns Sylvia, and of course, Sylvia screams, and another boy from the neighborhood punches Sylvia right in the face. It was shocking and disturbing. Now, if we find ourselves in a situation where our behavior has violated our moral code, then oftentimes people's 
natural reaction is just to ignore it. But let's pretend we wanted to learn from it. How did we get to this point? And often the answer is that we started going along with whatever the group was doing. People generally do not do a lot of crime committing by themselves. You know, when people are alone, they're simply much less likely to engage in serious criminal behavior. Now, it happens. Obviously, it happens. There is just something about getting involved with other people and getting kind of wrapped up into their uh, behaviors. And it, it very well could be that they're getting wrapped up into our behaviors. Like we're going back and forth alone. Neither of us would do anything, but together we're kind of motivating and talking each other into, and that's what every other episode of criminal minds was about the, you know, two psychopaths get together. Well, in our cases, we're not really talking about two psychopaths getting together. We're talking about two normal people getting together or a group of normal people getting together, doing something they wouldn't typically do. When I was 14 years old, my father was teaching at Ball State University and Ball State won round one of the NCAA tournament. Um, I want to say they beat Oregon. That might be wrong. And I'm not going to look it up. So if, I, if I'm wrong, I apologize. But they won and it was a very exciting game. It came out that after the game that a lot of the students went down to kind of the main drag through the campus and tore down some streetlights and there was some flashing going on and some, you know, fairly minor destruction. But I mean, stuff that these Midwestern boys and girls did would not typically get into. And what happened? There was the euphoria of winning. And so they were kind of, they were kind of pulled away from their identity because we were all, and I certainly was, I felt like I was part of the winning team when I watched that game. That was so exciting. And so they were feeling like they were really connected to the team. That was kind of pulling their individuality. They were getting away from their own mores of how people should behave. And then they got around with a bunch of other people who were all getting really excited. Um, there may have been a tad bit of alcohol involved. And so then suddenly people were, were doing what they would not normally do. And in some situations, it's gotten much more destructive than what we dealt with at Ball State. I had a friend who was on campus that day. And he said that, uh, and he was in high school. I was a freshman. He was a sophomore. And I've always wondered if this was true, but he told us, <laughs> you know, so you take this for what it's worth, but he told us that there was a very pretty girl who um, pulled up her shirt where you could see her stomach, uh, nothing more, but just her stomach. And she would let, <laughs> now as I say this out loud, it sounds nonsensical, but he, we believed him at the time that he got to rub her stomach. The greatest lesson from that might be how gullible teenage boys are. One of the reasons the Sylvia Likens story is interesting to me is because it took place in the center of the universe, Indianapolis, Indiana. So this is a hometown tragedy. And actually, it was a case that it created a lot of changes in the, in the laws of the state, including... Uh, the beginning of mandatory reporter laws and things like that. So, so there were some good things that came out of it, but the case itself was really shocking. Now I have a friend who swears they lived in the house Likens was murdered in. I, I do not know if that's true. <laughs> I don't have any idea. But again, that just gives you an idea of how how local for, for somebody in Indianapolis this tragedy was. The cure for this this kind of group disassociation is 
simply to remind yourself of you know who you are, what you're doing. Do you want to be doing this? And so if I'm at a concert, I love going to concerts. And if I'm at a concert, I I love the moment where I kind of forget myself and I'm you know really getting into it. That's a lot of fun. I don't I don't want to have a moment where I say, hey you're Steve Center and you're fat and you're old and everybody's looking at you. You know I don't want to have that moment where I go oh man I I ought to just sit down. But when we're talking about troubling behaviors, we're talking about bad behaviors, getting a, you know, reorient ourselves with just a quick sense of who we are can be extremely helpful. When I was uh, in college, me and some friends went out and maybe we're going to do some troublemaking. See, I'm being purposely very vague, but, but as we started to, um, to go places, it didn't take very long for me to be like, this is really stupid. I'm going to get myself, uh, you know, expelled from school because two of the guys we were with were a lot more reckless and criminally minded than I was or my or the other friend was or four of us. And I said, I'm, I'm not doing this. This is stupid. Like, uh, you know, I was initially kind of caught up, but it didn't take very long. And my doing that allowed my buddy to say, yeah, this is dumb. Let's get out of here. And we left. And then those other two guys did whatever they did. Like I said, if you can find somebody else who will, who will kind of help you maintain your sense of self, that can also be really helpful. January 6th with the big um, insurrection that took place in Washington, D.C. in 2021. I mean, we really were seeing this. We were seeing people, and I'm not arguing for or against their guilt, but people who behaved in ways they would never normally behave because they were with this group of people that, you know, Trump got them pumped up and motivated to go out. And, you know, people had been talking about it for weeks. See, and each thing that happens kind of adds to that. So that by the time people get there, they're really primed to act out. You know, the results were, were tragic. You know, people, you know, people died and, uh, and now people are going to prison. And of course, you know, so that's a that's a, uh, obviously a very negative, for instance, and, and a fairly public recent one. Maybe some of those people would continue to do that on their own. Overwhelming majority needed the anonymity of the crowd to make that happen. When we think, and I'm just going to kind of close with this idea. When we think about Sylvia Likens, we think about this little, see, I think I call her a little girl because she's 15 and I'm old. But we think about this young woman who was really just, it was so brutal and so violent and so vile that had there been one person who had had the courage to stand up for her and her sister tried and other people tried, but they would get quickly knocked down. If there had been one person who'd had the courage to tell, then the whole situation gets resolved and Sylvia's probably still alive today. Had that situation been addressed, had one person stood up and told, then Sylvia would not have died. None of those people would have gone to prison. Because as we end this, you know, we think about ourselves and as I've told my children, that anyone can get caught up in a situation. It is imperative that once you get out of that situation, that you really start to be honest with yourself about what you were doing, what's going on. And if you're still kind of stuck in it, well, then what do you need to do? Because it's, it's when we get alone that we'll start to, our, our morality will start to creep back in and impact our decision-making. This is Steve Center, The Lonely Guy, and this has been the Theories of Adulting podcast.